Chapter Twenty One of the False Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Mattingly. The False Faces by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Twenty One. Question. Through the breathing hush of that dark hour which foreruns the dawn that hour in which the head that knows a wakeful pillow is prone to sudden and disquieting apprehension of its insignificance and its soul's dread isolation the cab sped swiftly south upon the avenue shadowed reaches of the park upon its right upon its left the dull tired faces of those homes whose tenants lay wrapped in the cotton wool of riches the rain had ceased a little wind was blowing up there was a fresh smell in the air sidewalks began to be maculated with spreading areas of dryness but the roadway was still wet and shining the wide black mirror of a myriad lights through the windows of the speeding cab an orderly procession of street lamps marching past threw each its fugitive and pallid glimmer periods of modified darkness intervened when the face of the girl in her corner seemed a vision subtle and wraith-like but ever the recurrent lights revealed her sweetly incarnate, if deep in enervation, of crushing weariness. But, but ever the recurrent lights revealed her sweetly incarnate, if deep in enervation of crushing weariness. Once she stirred and sighed profoundly, and Lanyard, bending toward her, asked if he could be in any way of service. She replied in an undertone scarcely better than a whisper, "Thank you." I am quite comfortable. Please, what time is it? The cab was passing 60th Street. Lanyard caught a fleeting glimpse of a street clock with a dial like a little golden moon. It's just four. Thank you. Very tired? Very. He had the maddest notion that her head inclined to droop towards his shoulder. Perhaps the motion of the cab? If so, she recovered easily. Can I do anything? No, thank you, only... An ungloved hand stirred from her lap for the merest instant rested lightly above his own, or hovered, rather, barely touching it with a touch tenuous and elusive, no sooner realised than gone. I mean, she murmured, I am a bit too overwrought, too tired to talk. I quite understand, he said. Please forget I am here, just rest. Perhaps she smiled drowsily, or was that too a freak of his imagination? Lanyard assured himself it was in excess of consideration even tried to persuade himself he had dreamed that ghost of a caress upon his hand it seemed so little like her not that anything had happened more than a gesture of transient inadvertence due to fatigue it could not have been intentional that act of intimacy when the girl was altogether engrossed in young thackeray there was something one must not forget something that gave the lie flatly to that innuendo of the veringroders Ignorant of the circumstances, the intriganta had leaped blindly at conclusions after the habit of her kind. True, Sophie had not implied that this girl cared for him, but vice versa. Either supposition, however, was absurd as the other, as if Lanyard could love a woman who loved another, as if the name of love meant aught to him but the memory of a sweetness like a vagrant air of spring that had breathed fitfully for a season upon the winter of his heart. A corner of Lanyard's mouth lifted in a sneer. That precious heart of his, the heart of a thief, upon which even now the fruits of his thieving weighed. 
Irritated, he wrenched his thoughts into another channel and began to piece together inconsecutive snatches of information gained from Crane in the confusion of the quarter hour just past, while the Secret Service operatives were busy rounding up the inmates of that spyfold and searching for evidences of their impudent activities. It appeared that Washington had at length, however tardily, roused out of its inertia, and at midnight had telegraphed instructions to arrest out of hand every enemy alien in the land against whom there was evidence of conspiracy or even a ponderable suspicion. So unexpected was this order that Crane had volunteered to show Cecilia Brooke that midnight rendezvous of the Prussian spy system, without the least notion that he might be required before morning to lead a raiding force against the establishment, and even when a messenger stopped him as he turned to enter au printemps, he was not advised concerning the cause of this demand for his immediate presence at headquarters. The first cast of what Crane aptly termed the dragnet had brought in the management and service staff to a man, with a number of the restaurant's habitués, including Sophie Verengroder and her errand-boy, the exquisite Mr. Revel. Velasco, however, had somehow mysteriously managed to slip through the meshes and had straightway hastened to spread the alarm. As for O'Reilly and Dressier, they had left with Ekstrom in pursuit of Lanyard less than five minutes before, and so had escaped not only arrest, but all knowledge of the raid prior to their return to 79th Street. The second cast of the net had been made at the latter place as soon as the watchers were able to assure Crane that Ekstrom and O'Reilly had returned, Dressier having anticipated them there by something like half an hour. By daybreak, then, these gentry would be interned on Ellis Island. And, break of day, impended visibly in greyish shades that stole westward through the crosstown streets like clouds of secret agents spying out the city against invasion by the serried lances of the sun. A garish twilight washed 42nd Street from wall to wall by the time the car swung round in front of the Knickerbocker. As yet, however, there was little evidence that the town was growing restive in its sleep with premonition of the ardour of another day. Lanyard stepped down and offered the girl a hand in whose palm her slender fingers rested lightly for an instant, ere she passed on, while he turned to bid the driver wait. Following, he overtook her in the entrance, where by tacit consent both paused and lingered in an odd constraint. There was so much to be said that it was impossible to say just then. Visibly the woman drooped, betraying physical exhaustion in every line of her pose, seeming scarcely strong enough to lift the silken lashes that trembled upon cheeks a little drawn and pale, with the faintest of bluish rings beneath the eyes. "'I must not keep you,' Lanyard broke the silence. "'I merely wish to say good-night, and—I am sorry.' "'Sorry?' she echoed. "'That you had such an unhappy experience,' he explained. "'Thanks to your thoughtfulness for me, I do not deserve so much consideration, and that only makes me feel all the more regretful.' It was silly of me, she admitted with a shadowy, rueful smile. I'm afraid my silliness makes too much trouble. He commented honestly, I don't understand. If I had only been patient enough to wait for you to call me. Forgive that oversight. I was pressed for time, as you may imagine. Oh, it all comes back to my own stupidity. I might have known you had come through all right. How should you? Why not? When you turn up here in New York safe and sound after being drowned on the Assyrian, as if that were not proof enough that you bear a charmed life. Charmed? he laughed. And you haven't yet told me how you survived that adventure. 
You are kind to be interested, and I am unfortunate in never seeing you save under circumstances unfavourable for yarn-spinning. You might be more fortunate. Only tell me how. If you cared to ask me to dine with you tomorrow, I mean, tonight, you would? He was distressed by consciousness that his voice had thrilled impetuously, but perhaps she had not noticed. There was no change in the even friendliness of her tone. I'm as inquisitive as any woman had ever lived. Even if I wished to, I'm afraid I shouldn't be able to resist an invitation to hear your odyssey. Delmonico's at eight? Thank you, she said primly. You make me too happy. May I call for you? Please, she offered a hand whose touch he found cool, steady, and impersonal. Good morning, Mr. Ember. He stood in a stare while she went quickly through the lobby to a waiting elevator, then roused and went back to his cab. It was by daylight that he re-entered his rooms and found them tenanted by a negro boy, bound and gagged, bruised and sore, and scared beyond intelligible expression. Freeing him and salving his injuries bodily and spiritual with a liberal douceur, Lanyard exacted an oath of silence, and then turned him out. He had approximately five hours to put in somehow before his appointment with Colonel Stanistreet at nine, and was too well versed in the law of late hours to think of giving any part of that time to sleep. By so doing, he would only ensure a mutinous awakening with mind and body sluggish and unrested. If, on the other hand, he remained awake, he would go to that interview in a state of supernormal animation exceedingly to be desired if he were to round out this adventure without discredit, for its end was not yet. He had still a part to play whose lines were not yet written, whose business remained to be invented. He neither dared shirk that appointment for reasons of policy, nor wished to, while there remained reparation to be accomplished, a wrong to be righted, justice to be done, a question to be answered. Only when these matters had been put in order would he feel his honour discharged of its burdens, himself free once more to drop out and go in peace his lonely ways in life, ways henceforth to be both lonely and aimless. For, when he strove to peer into the future, only an emptiness confronted him, with Ekstrom accounted for finally and forevermore, there was nothing to come but the final accounting of the lone wolf with that civilization which had bred and suffered him. One way presented itself to make that reckoning even. The Foreign Legion of France asks no embarrassing questions of its recruits, and enlistment in its ranks offers with anonymity a consoling certainty. Thus alone might he find his way home to the heart of that enigma whence he had emerged, a nameless waif astray in grim Parisian byways. This vision of his end contenting him, he began to scheme a campaign for the day that was simple enough in prospect, a little chicanery with Stanistreet, a personal appeal to Crane to restore the passports of Monsieur André Duchemin, which must have been found on Ekstrom's body, a berth on some steamer sailing for Europe, and then the last in vanishment. One detail alone troubled him, his promise to the Brook girl that she should dine with him that night. Reminded of this obligation, figuratively, he seized Michael Lanyard by the scruff of his neck and shook him with a savage hand. What insensate folly was ever his! What want of wit and strength to keep out of temptation's way! Why must he have fallen in so readily with her suggestion? Why this infatuate's thirst for sympathy, this eagerness to violate the seals of reticence at the wish of a strange woman? 
Was there any reasonable explanation of the strange lack of his wonted self-sufficiency in the company of Cecilia Brooke? No matter. If he might not contrive somehow to squirm out of that engagement, he could at all events school himself to decent reticence. He promised himself to make his account of the submarine adventure drearily bald and trite, to minimise to the last degree his part therein, above all things to refrain from painting the lone wolf in romantic colours. She was much too good a sort, too straight, sincere, fair-minded, honest, the sort of girl who deserved the Thackeray sort of man, never a thief, if she even dreamed. Lanyard brought forth from its hiding-place the necklace, weighed it in his hand, examined it minutely. Granting its marvellous perfection, he recognised no more its beauty, dispassionately reviewed in turn each stone of matchless loveliness, no more susceptible to their seductive purity, perceiving in them nothing but hard, bright, translucent pebbles, cold, soulless, cruel. One by one they slipped through his fingers like beads of an unholy rosary. At length, crushing them together in the hollow of his palm, he stood a while in thought, then turning to his writing-desk, bundled the necklace in wrappings of white tissue, secured with rubber bands, counted carefully the sheaf of bills he had taken from Ekstrom, sealed the whole amount in a plain, long envelope, and put this aside in company with the necklace. Already two hours had passed, and since he meant to call at the house on West End Avenue well in advance of the hour when Cecilia Brooke might be there, presuming Blensop had given her the same appointment as he had given Mr. Ember, that is, nine o'clock, it was now time to prepare. Returning to his bedchamber, he laid out a carefully selected change of clothing, shaved, parboiled himself in a hot bath, chilled him to the pith in one of icy coldness, and dressed with scrupulous heed to detail, studiously effacing every sign of his sleepless night. That experience was in no way to be surmised from his appearance when he sallied forth to breakfast at the plaza. At eight precisely, presenting himself at the Stanistreet residence, he desired the footman to announce him as the author of a certain telegram from Edgar Town. He was obliged to wait less than a minute. The footman returned in haste to request him to step into the library. This apartment, which he found much as he had last seen it eight hours ago, its window shattered, the portieres down, the furniture in some disorder, was, on his introduction, occupied by two persons, one an elderly, iron-grey gentleman of untidy dress and unobtrusive habit in spite of a discerning cool grey eye, the other Mr. Blensop, in the neatest of one-button morning-coat effects with striped trouserings, neither too smart nor too sober for that state of life unto which it had pleased God to call him, and fair white spats. If his attire was radiant, so was the temper of the secretary's sunny. He tripped forward in sprightliest fashion, offering cordial hands to the caller till he recognised him, and even then was discountenanced only for the briefest moment. "'My dear Mr. Ember,' he purred soothingly, "'why didn't you tell me last night it was you who had sent that telegram? If I had for a moment suspected the truth, you should have had your appointment with Colonel Stanistreet at any hour you might have cared to name, no matter how ungodly.' Lanyard bowed gravely. "'Thank you,' he said. "'And Colonel Stanistreet is just finishing breakfast. He will be down directly. Please be seated, make yourself entirely at ease, and will you excuse me?' "'With pleasure,' Lanyard assured him, his gravity unbroken. 
A doubt clouded Mr. Blensop's bright eyes, but its transit was instantaneous. He turned forthwith to join the iron-grey man before the portrait which concealed the safe. "'And now, Mr. Stone,' said Mr. Blensop, with indulgence. "'Well, sir,' said Mr. Stone quietly, "'if you'll be good enough to show me how this contraption works, maybe I'll find out something interesting, maybe not.' Mr. Blensop proceeded to oblige by operating the lever and sliding aside the portrait. "'Thanks,' said Mr. Stone, producing a magnifying glass from a waistcoat pocket and beginning to peer myopically at the face of the safe. I take it nobody's been pawing over this since the late, as you might say, unpleasantness. Not a soul has touched it. By Colonel Stanistreet's order it was covered as soon as we found it had been tampered with. Hmm, Mr. Stone acknowledged, bending close to his work. Partially, perhaps by way of administering an urbane rebuke to Lanyard for his readiness to dispense with his society, Mr. Blensop remained in the neighbourhood of Mr. Stone, hovering around him like a domesticated hummingbird. "'Did you find anything?' he inquired when Stone straightened up. "'Fingerprints are plenty,' Mr. Stone admitted with a hint of temper. "'A slew of the damn things. Looks like you must have called in the neighbours to help make a good show. However, we'll see what we can make of them.' He conjured from some recess in his clothing a squat bottle, from another a stopper in which was fitted a blowpipe, joined the two together, approached the safe with one end of the pipe between his lips, and sprayed it with a thin film of white powder, the contents of the bottle. "'I say, do tell me what that's for.' "'That,' said Mr. Stone patiently, "'is to make the fingerprints stand out, so we can get a good likeness of them.' He put the bottle aside, blinked at the safe approvingly, and by further exercise of powers of ledger domain materialised a pocket Kodak and a flashlight pistol. "'Can't I help you?' Blensop offered eagerly. "'I used to be rather a dab at amateur photography, you know.' "'Well, I'm kind of stuck on pressing the button myself,' Stone confessed, adjusting the focus. "'But if you want to work that flashlight, I don't mind.' "'Delighted,' Mr. Blensop asserted. "'How does it go now?' "'Like this.' Stone set his camera down to demonstrate. "'Now stand just behind me,' he concluded, "'and pull the trigger when I say now.' "'I'll do my best, but—' I say, will it bang? Stone had taken up the camera once more. His sole answer was a grunt, upon which his hearers placed two distinct interpretations, Lanyard's offering him considerable gratification. If you're ready, said Stone, now. Mr. Blensop squinted unbecomingly and pressed the trigger. A vivid flare lifted from the pan of the pistol and winked out in a cloud of vapour, slowly dissipating. Is that all? Yes, sir, that's all of that. Stone stowed the camera away about his person, and from another cranny produced a small cardboard box of glass slides, one of which he offered. Now, if you'll just run your fingers through your hair and rest them on this side, light but steady. What for? Blensop demanded with a giggle of nervous reluctance. You don't think I'm the thief, do you? No, sir, I don't. But if I haven't got your fingerprints, how am I going to tell them from the thieves? Oh, I see. Blensop said with a note of allayed apprehension, and put himself on record. The door opened to admit Colonel Stanistreet. Lanyard rose. At sight of him, the Englishman checked and stared inquiringly, his eyes shadowed by careworn brows, for it was apparent that, if the events of the night had not depressed the spirits of his secretary, his employer had known little sleep or none since the burglary. Colonel Stanistreet, Blensop said, melodiously abandoning stone, to his unsupervised devices. 
This is Mr. Ember, the gentleman who called last night before you got home. It appears he is the person who sent us that telegram from Edgartown the day before yesterday. Indeed, Ember is not the name with which the message was signed. The message was purposely left unsigned, Lanyard explained. Stanistreet nodded approval. I am glad to meet you, Mr. Ember, he said, offering a hand. Be seated. I am most anxious first to express our gratitude, next to learn how you came by your information. You will find it an interesting story. No doubt of that. Stanistreet took the desk chair, opened a cigar humidor, and offered it. I shall be even more interested, however, he said, with an evanescent trace of humour, to know who the devil you are, sir. That is something I am prepared to prove to your satisfaction. If you will be so good, but excuse me for one moment. Stanistreet turned in his chair. Mr. Stone? Yes, sir. Have you finished with the safe? If so, I want my secretary to check over its contents carefully and make sure nothing else is missing. I'm all through with it, Colonel Stanistreet. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to mouse around and see if I can nose out anything else that's useful. That shall be entirely as you will. Now, Blensop, Stanistreet nodded to his secretary, let us make certain. Yes, sir. Blithely, Mr. Blensop addressed himself to the safe. There has been an accident of some sort, Colonel Stanistreet, Lanyard inquired civilly, nodding towards the shattered French window. A burglary, sir. The criminal escaped? Stanistreet nodded. Our watchman surprised him and was shot for his pains, not seriously, I'm happy to say. The burglar got himself tangled up in that window, but extricated in time, and went over the garden wall before we could determine which way he had taken. I trust you lost nothing of value. Stanistreet shrugged. Unhappily we did. A diamond necklace, the property of my sister-in-law, and, ah, a document we could ill afford to part with. But you offered to show me credentials, I believe. Such as they are, Lanyard replied. My passports and letters were stolen from me, but these, I think, should serve as well to prove my bona fides. He laid out in order upon the desk his plunder from the safe aboard the U-boat, all but the money, the three cipher codes, the log, the diary of the commander, the directory of German secret agents, and such other documents as he had selected. The first, Colonel Stanistreet took up with a dubious frown, which swiftly lightened, yielding as he pursued his examination into the papers, and began to recognise their surpassing value to the Allied cause, to a subdued glimmer of gratulatory excitement. But he was at pains to satisfy himself as to the authenticities of each paper in turn, providing a lull for which Lanyard was not ungrateful, since it gave him a chance to adjust his understanding to an unexpected development in the affair. He lounged at ease, smoking, his eyes half veiled by lowered lids, keenly reviewing the room and its tenants. Stone, the detective, an operative Lanyard rightly inferred of the American Secret Service, loaned to the British in order to keep the burglary out of police records and newspapers, had wandered out into the garden that glowed with young April sunlight beyond the windows. From time to time he was to be seen stooping and inspecting the earth with the gravity of an earnest, efficient, sober-sided sleuth of the old school. Blensop was busy before the safe, extracting the contents of each pigeonhole in turn, thumbing its dockets of papers, checking each off upon a typewritten list several pages in length. To that lithe and debonair figure Lanyard's gaze oftenest reverted. So, not only had the necklace been stolen, but a document, which the British Secret Service could ill afford to part with, 
Lanyard entertained no least doubt as to the identity of the document in question. There could be but one, he felt, which Stanistreet would so characterize. That document had not been in the safe when Lanyard had opened it at midnight. After a moment, Mr. Blensor uttered a musical note of vexation. The lead of his pencil had broken. He threw it pettishly aside, came over to the desk, took up a penholder, dipped it in the inkwell, and returned to his task. End of chapter 21